Hi everyone, it's Boozy here for a little prelude to tonight's episode because I forgot to do it during the show. Boozy's Legal Funhouse is an educational, informational, and hopefully entertaining look at general legal principles in the United States of America. While the people appearing tonight are attorneys, we are not your attorneys. The only way we become your attorneys is if you call us at our normal offices, schedule an appointment, come in, sit down, discuss the case with us. We agree to undertake representation. You pay us a retainer of your choosing, of our choosing, not your choosing. <laughs> God, that would be a nightmare. And sign an engagement letter. Until then, nothing contained in this broadcast is legal advice we do not represent you no attorney client privilege attaches no attorney client relationship is formed as always the law varies widely from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and if you have a specific legal matter you should contact a licensed attorney in your jurisdiction please for the love of god do not say, a fat man who acts like a badger on the internet told me to do this. It will not hold up in court. That said, please enjoy episode 18 of Boozy's Legal Funhouse. Bad lawyer, more sanctions. Hello everybody, how are you doing? It's Boozy back again for another episode of Boozy's Legal Funhouse. Tonight's episode, episode 18, Bad Lawyer, More Sanctions. I am joined tonight by our very special guest who I have been referring to as a lawyer named Tommy. <laughs> Hello everyone, I'm also a purple bird. For those of you who want to know. You may remember a lawyer named Tommy from our discussion of qualified immunity. Uh, Tommy is a litigator in New York City, the Big Apple. Uh, more specifically, you're what, in Long Island? Or are you, like, actually oh. in the city? Like, are you one of those fucks who's like, I'm from New York City and you're really from, like, the island? Uh, no, 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 not from Long Island. Uh, I'm from Queens. So the bridge over my shoulder, that's the 59th Street Bridge. And for those of you who can't see this, who aren't watching it live, it's the Queensboro Bridge. I took a picture and blew it up. It's on a canvas over my shoulder. That's so, it. No, not from Long Island. No, that not at all. Now, before, I, I'm going to read off the names of our $5 level and above Patreon supporters. If you want to be one of the supporters of Boozy's Legal Funhouse, you can do that over at patreon.com slash lawyersandliquor. So, special thank you to Jarl the Spirit Wolf, Dragor, Jack of All Korgs, Nikolai, Tezcat Magic Jag, Wayland DeRoche, Beaton, those are the Trash Panda, Eddie the Weatherfox, Mark Beckwar, Mama T, Uncle Kage, Ash Jeeves, Evelyn Klein, Lisa Lupe, Mark Phaedrus, Netherlinks, Pandemonium Hawk, Petro, Neutrino, Terrence, Buddy, Good Boy, CC Otter, Chroma Hydra, David Hunter, Ed B. Colley, Evie, Feck, Ghost Goat, Grace Jane Gollinger, Ian Della Horn, Jason Knight, Jeremy the Head Fox, and Just Dave, Just James, Calic, Coma Blood, Paul, Mark Whipple, Michael Blocker, Sean Rabbit, The Dragon Show, Wheelie, and Zero Slyon. I always love reading off the names of those supporters because I imagine that somebody listening to this on their favorite podcast service is going, why the fuck are there all the animal names? And it just, it, it, it fills me with an obscene amount of joy. 
But speaking of obscene amounts of joy, lawyers are normally the center of doom and naysaying. But Tommy, I understand you have good news. Oh, I do. Yes. So um, I got engaged on Saturday, this past Saturday. Got got engaged on Saturday and spent yes. Monday with me. What Correct. the fuck <laughs> is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we had enough fun over the weekend, and my boyfriend's a flight attendant. I should say fiance. fiance now. I'm Your fiance <laughs> is a flight attendant. I'm not used to it yet. This You are like the fifth person today who's like, not your boyfriend. Yeah. Like, very stern. Like, no, no, no. Fiance. Like, we are wait, wait until after the wedding, and you have to go from fiance to husband. That's going to oh, really God. fuck with you. I don't know how I'm going to do that. Because <laughs> that's just so final, right? Like, that's like death taxes... I, I practice family law, and I assure you, it is not final. <laughs> I I was in I was clerking for a family law judge when uh, in college when they did uh, gay marriage was made legal in New York in two thousand and eight, and everybody in the law firms running around high fiving each other. I'm like, why are you all excited? They're like, we got ten percent more clients. The gays are allowed to get divorced. <laughs> cha ching, motherfucker. Cha ching. <laughs> I used to joke, I said, when they make gay marriage legal, I'm going to start an advertising blitz that is basically, I'll get you everything and his little dog, too. Uh, and see, see how it goes over. Um, That's amazing. <laughs> so before we get into tonight's topic, uh, which is a carryover from last week's topic of pleading standards and filing complaints, answers, and various other pleadings, we have to turn... Yeah as always, to the legal news. Uh, now, Tommy, you've been here before, and last time I did you the favor of actually telling you what the cases were in advance. I'm not you doing did not. I, I'm not doing that this time. Yeah, I, I, I'm not, no. You, you get one time when you're, like, adequately prepped for the show. Then after <laughs> that, fuck you, we're rolling with it. We well, record it live, we do it live, baby. As long as everybody was happy to have me back, I was glad to be back, and the reception was kind of positive. I, and I'm I like, love, Yo, I, let's I, go. Legal Funhouse riding the high off of being engaged. Let's go. I love I love the thought process that if like they've been like, don't bring that motherfucker back. That I would have listened was to like, like, Yo, fuck you. Yeah, I pay for the podcasting service. I'm sitting in my basement doing this, and I'm talking to the people I want to talk to. The rest of you fuckers are just along for the ride. <laughs> Strap in. It's a bumpy ride, folks. Oh, it's not Saturday night, Tommy. Um, <laughs> that said, the first piece of legal news today is from the ABA Journal. As a matter of fact, all three of our pieces of legal news tonight are from the ABA Journal. And this was, you know how you used to have dreams about, like, being in school and having a test that you're not prepared for, or you look down and it's completely the wrong language, or you had some some really fucked up thing going on? Like, you had those dreams, right, Tommy? When my dream was the one where you you'd show up for like a complicated test and then you'd be in your underwear and no one else was. I was always in like briefs and stuff and they never fit right. So parts of me were out that shouldn't have been out. And then there was questions on the test about my anatomy and it was, well, yeah, it was I, weird. I can do you be one better. I can give you every lawyer's law school nightmare. 
Several minutes into a Ninth Circuit online hearing, an attorney realized he was arguing the wrong case. Chad Hatfield, an attorney before the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, who argues on behalf of Social Security claimants, was actually arguing about fibromyalgia treatments when the judges informed him the case they were hearing at that moment concerned diabetes, manic depressive disorder, and social phobia. One of the judges looked at him and said, Check to make sure you've got the right case in front of you. Um, uh, it was about five minutes and ten seconds into the argument before Hatfield realized he had actually been in front of the court, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, a United States appeals court, arguing the completely incorrect case he had prepared for the wrong case in general going into the hearing he had argued five minutes of it and then the judges were like oh wait no no no." well here's my question was do you and you might not know so this is fun for all of you because i'm like you this time i don't have the answers um was he granted any sort of adjournments or they gave him 10 minutes Wow. They gave ten him 10 minutes. They gave him 10 minutes to prepare for the other case. He came back and delivered a solid argument. The mix-up was caused because Hatfield had a case on the same day of the following week in front of the Ninth Circuit and he had mixed them up when preparing. Well, who got fired for that? The calendar. Uh, apparently nobody got <laughs> fired. <laughs> <laughs> apparently like no one got fired for for this mix-up uh they did say that the argument he delivered was solid as to the matter which makes sense because when you're going up in front of a circuit court of appeals you're not winging it like you didn't stay up the night before prepare you're ready a week or so in advance of the case you've done this a thousand times with your colleagues you yeah. sat you've done what we call mooting where you sit and you fake it and they pelt you with questions, and you got piles of paper everywhere. So this this was not like, oh, I made a oopsie. Like this was this guy probably was shitting his pants. A, a solid break. Yeah, and and there's there's a very good chance because the case he was getting ready to argue, or the case he had been arguing, was scheduled for the next week. Uh, the chance is he was ready for both of them, and he had them both ready to go. Uh, Hatfield actually did explain his scheduler put down the cases on the wrong day. They flip-flopped the cases. Doesn't appear he asked for continuance uh, on it. It appears he went forward and he delivered what was called a solid argument. But can you imagine the asshole pucker when a judge says, oh, by the way, Mr. Hatfield, you're arguing the wrong case? You know, it's it's one of those things where when you're arguing, I'm not principally an appellate lawyer but i do appeals and when you're arguing the wrong case and you're arguing in an appellate court you're arguing for either why the rule itself doesn't apply to your case or why the rule should change so these are things that are kind of high stakes it's not like it's not like you're arguing a trial motion or a court you know before the trial courts you're arguing in a specific and a nuanced way more so than you might argue at a trial level so this guy i I really want to stress to the audience this is not something that this attorney 
can just wave off and be like, oh, it's, I'm sorry, I had Abbott today and this is Adams and I made a mistake. Can I get 10 days? This you got is, 10 minutes. This is a call your malpractice insurer afterwards, even if you do a solid fucking argument. Mm-hmm. Call them and put you write a certified notice. letter and say, I appeared on this case for this appeal doing this thing and I did it wrong and here's your notice pursuant to the policy. Please ask me anything you would like. And now, you pray the complaint doesn't come in. Now, it does sound good, though. All he does, apparently, is uh, a good chunk of Social Security claims. Uh, the fact that he had more than one case in the same month up in front of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals indicates to me he's probably arguing the same types of legal areas in each case. Like If you do one or maybe only two areas of law, you gain almost an encyclopedic knowledge of the law that impacts your specific area. Uh, so if these were appeals of denials regarding the cases going up there, uh, very good chance that the underlying law and legal arguments were similar, if not the same, uh, and that he had a very good grasp of not only the facts of the case, but of the cases he was arguing yeah. and supporting. Not- and No, that's something that I, I think you should clarify, too. Like When we say notify your carrier, it doesn't mean that you made a malpractice-like error. Because a lot of these policies, uh, one of the facets of what I do is actually legal malpractice. So I'm a great Monday morning quarterback. And um, you have to tell your malpractice carrier, a lot of them as, uh, you know, getting coverage and getting payment and getting defended when somebody sues you for legal malpractice. You have to notify the carrier of things that a reasonable attorney in their professional capacity practicing in your area would believe to be malpractice within a certain number of days after the event. Usually it's 30 days or so. So that's why you say it's better just send them letters and let nothing happen to preserve your right to the coverage under the policy. Yeah. So uh, the the next one today, and I like this one. Like this one was chosen for the headline alone. Um, (laughs) From the ABA Journal, woman who led police on low-speed chase on her mobility scooter wins reversal of her conviction. Uh, a, a woman in Oregon, Jennifer Grace Gaiman, uh, was arrested and convicted of eluding the police on a mobility scooter. Miss Gaiman uses the scooter to do a degenerative eye disease and pulmonary disease. And an officer in Brookings, Oregon, had actually stopped her when she was heading home from karaoke because she wasn't wearing a helmet and operating on the, sco- on the scooter on the sidewalk. Uh, with the scooter. The police told her at that point that she would not be allowed to operate the scooter the rest of the way when she was heading home. Uh, Of course, she's on a mobility scooter, so she operated the scooter the rest of the way going home, and the police did the uh, very reasonable thing of following her low speed with lights and sirens for three minutes back to her house, where they then arrested her for fleeing or attempting to elude the police. The appeals court that looked at this determined, A, the mobility scooter was not a motor vehicle, B, she was not attempting to elude the officers at all. And C, she should not have been fined at that time. Uh, So they reversed 
her conviction stating the gravity of the error and the ends of justice move us to exercise our discretion to correct the error. I want to reiterate the police in Brookings, Oregon chased down someone on a mobility scooter and charged them with evading the police for going home. For those of you who were here for the qualified immunity discussion, and if you didn't hear it, I suggest you go hear it because I was in it. But my opinion of the police is not all that high, and you just lowered it a notch. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what to say. I It's very rare that I'm speechless. As a New Yorker, we're not allowed to be. Like, it's, it's in our DNA. It doesn't work. I don't... I don't know what to say. Like, I need to find out where this place was in Oregon, what the makeup looks like, what the crime stats are, because is there so little crime? There must I, be either, either that or, and my other thought on this. Honestly, was, what is it? <laughs> I don't know. Was I do DUI work. And for the purposes of DUI, just about fucking anything is considered a vehicle. I, and you know, people get DUIs on horses. So I have had a long-standing question in my mind of whether a drunk person in an electric wheelchair who operates it as they're supposed to operate it, uh, which is either you know right off the sidewalk or the bike lane a lot of times, uh, if they are using it, are they guilty of a DUI? Or are they well, simply that's... guilty of public intoxication? What what bothers me about that kind of thing is too. Teslas and things that have these autopilots coming, for, you know, coming up with all that. What if I'm not the operator? What if I'm not the person operating it? What if the bartender got in, touched the button that says home, and I'm asleep in the back seat? I'm not operating the vehicle. Yeah, and so I, and I would think that they would say, you know, because right now the way they say it is, it's only supposed to be operated when a human can take control. Yeah, that's what Tesla says. Yes. So, <laughs> so I would say they would say, well, how does the criminal law look at that, yeah. right? Because if you're the not human operating. taking control, uh, then then maybe we should do that. But I, it's always a lot of DUI laws have always rubbed me the wrong way. Uh, you know, the, the uh, somebody was asleep in the back seat of their car with their keys on the front seat, and they get a DUI because they had the immediate ability to to get in the front seat and start the vehicle. That kind of gets to like thought crime for me, yeah. like George Orwell. Like, like just because I had the option to drive my car immediately if I chose to, but I made the choice to not do that. Like, I made the choice to get in the back and sleep it off. Yeah, no, I yeah. I, I completely agree. But, I yeah, it's just it's one of those weird areas where a lot of bad things or somebody gets to their driveway and they're drunk in their driveway and they're asleep and they have the seat back and the keys are in the ignition and it's closed because they don't want wife or husband to find out that they drank and drove. So they're letting they're sleeping it off a little bit and they're going to sneak in. That happens all the time where the cops walk up the driveway, the car's running or the keys are in the ignition and they knock on the window and the guy gets booked in his driveway. Right. DUI is is one of those sensitive topics. It it really mm -hmm. is because a lot of people have lost someone to drunk driving and it's a very sensitive, Mm -hmm. but I, I believe that we have hit a point of overzealousness to some extent. Yeah, but where does that become a line, of, like a Fourth Amendment violation crossing over your driveway? Oh, yeah. Where does this too much of a, a, a government intrusion on your privacy because of an automobile and oh, the, yeah. the freedom it gives you too? So yes, we have to regulate these things and make sure people don't get killed. But what harm is is little Susie Karaoke char- you know, having 
on the world, even if she was drunk. How fast could it go? And yeah, mobility. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Some of those mobility scooters got some fucking pep. Some of those scooters got some pep to them. They can, they can move. Are we talking like a Walmart scooter? Or are we talking like I, I, the ones I no, see? No, I, I think we're talking Parkway? like, you know, the hover around going to see the Grand Canyon scooters. I mean, you're not really hurting somebody except getting a shin bruise or something. Like, what, what are these guys doing? I don't get it. Good lawyering, good lawyering on the part of that lawyer. By oh, the yeah. Way. No, I, I yeah. completely agree. Guy uh, deserves a statue. Finally, our last piece of legal news tonight, and this is one that I am very happy to read. Florida Coastal Law School has had a teach-out plan approved, and its classes will end after the summer semester. Florida Coastal Law School, one of the infinite law law schools, private law schools, has lost its student loan ability. Uh, will no longer receive federal financial aid, and as a result, will be losing its ABA accreditation after the summer semester. They have implemented a teach-out plan uh, to to allow students to go over to other schools and finish their degrees. They will keep their accreditation uh, until 2023, June 1st of 2023, to allow students to finish up. Uh, and otherwise, they're gone. Motherfucker, those for-profit predators who prey on the dreams of potential attorneys are gone, baby, gone. This is the last of the Infinite Law Law Schools. Uh, there was the one in Arizona, which I completely forgot the fucking name of. Uh, I don't know. There, there was another one, I believe, in Atlanta. That's gone. Or North Carolina. That's gone now. Infinilol has gone the way of the dinosaurs and may their like never be seen again. Arizona Summit. That's what it was. Arizona Summit. And then they had one in yeah. North Carolina. Charlotte School of Law. Yep. That's why Google exists. Yep. I actually, back when I originally started the Lawyers and Liquor blog uh, years ago, I actually wrote a very scathing piece about Charlotte. Uh, school of Law and how they've been denied financial aid and my general thoughts on for-profit law schools that are not tied into accredited institutions that are just standalone law schools and all of that. Uh, and it wasn't good. I didn't have good feelings for them. I always viewed them as kind of predators going out there and, and they pluck from the people least likely to pass the bar. And say, well, you too can be a lawyer if you give us this much money. And it's no less predatory than payday lending, in my thoughts. It's get, it's preying on people's needs and hopes and dreams, uh, especially given the fact that they all had just horrendous bar pass rates. I, I could even forgive it if they didn't have horrendous bar pass rates. But almost Well, the, the line and the trope that they always use, a lot of schools do this, is they'll say, and I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the ABA changed the statistical reporting requirements because a lot of these schools were reporting near 100% employment and they were reporting it because employment didn't mean either a JD advantage job where your law it degree didn't mean helps legal you. Employment. It, did, yeah, it didn't it mean like I could burgers. Like that's employed under the, the yeah. whatever the definition was. And a lot of these law schools got in trouble and the ABA was like, 
No, you're we when we say the word employed, we mean employed in either a JD advantage position or practicing law. Yeah, that's we, what we mean. We mean lawyers, motherfucker. We didn't, you know, nobody gave you seventy thousand to uh, to go and find out whether or not they were the best, smartest burger flipper on the face of the planet. Which, not that there's anything wrong with flipping burgers, just. You wouldn't pay seventy six thousand dollars. Yeah, it's it's not it. a skill set that you're gonna get into two hundred and sixty two thousand dollars for. Yeah, right. So uh, before we get into tonight's topic, I do have a story. As I got home tonight, my phone rang. It was one of my clients, uh, which I want to know how the fuck they got my number. I was gonna say you give them your number. Yeah, no, never. Um, and it, they rang like not like on the Google Voice number I give clients, and I'm like, this is my number. Uh, yeah, they didn't ring on that. that one. They rang on my actual cell phone number, and I'm I, I really want to know how the fuck they got that. But they call me and they're talking to me. It's one of those clients that I, like every time you talk to them, it's like, no, I did this. And I'm like, no, you didn't. Like, what? Don't tell me you did it. I am the one person in the world who knows you didn't do the thing I asked you to do because I've been looking to see whether or not it's done. And we're going back. But finally, I said, look, I am at home. I am not going to have this conversation until I'm back in the office tomorrow. So call me during normal business hours at my office. We'll have this talk then, right? I hang up the phone. My five-year-old son is standing at the foot of our bed. And he looks at me and he goes, Daddy, I want to talk to your friend. (laughs) And I said, oh, no, buddy, that wasn't one of Daddy's friends. That was one of Daddy's clients. And he got upset because he likes to talk to people on the phone. And he goes, but they're your bestest friend. And I said, okay, son, we need to have a very firm discussion about the difference between friend and client because some of my clients blur that line too and my toddler will not be doing that <laughs> um but i just like daddy i need to talk to your friend oh that wasn't a friend. the innocence of children no, though, that, that wasn't <laughs> a friend buddy friends don't make daddy answer the phone at six fifteen at night while he's at home uh to yell at them So tonight's topic, last week we actually uh, talked a good chunk about pleading requirements and how those work on the federal and state levels. We talked about notice pleading, we talked about code slash fact pleading, we talked about pleading in the alternative. It was very dry, Uh, drier than the Sahara, actually, Uh, drier than somebody who's not attracted to you in the Sahara during the dry season. It is a dry topic. And we did that so we could lead up to tonight's topic in the wonderful world of civil procedure, the most exciting area of law out there. Right, Tommy? Oh, God. Sanctions, sanctions, and more (laughs) sanctions. So tonight's topic, Rule 11 and their state equivalents, bad lawyer, more sanctions. A quick refresher for the people who were here last week and weren't here last week. Last time on the Legal Funhouse, we covered the pleading standards present in law, specifically code and fact pleading and notice pleading. In summary, code fact pleading requires you plead the material facts supporting each element of a cause of action that, if taken as true, entitle you to the requested relief. 
Notice pleading, which is applicable in most federal, in all federal courts and a lot of state courts, requires you to plead only enough facts to show that the other party, to put the other party on notice of your cause of action and to show that it is plausible, not probable, plausible, you could succeed at trial on the matter. If you really need more than that, you need to go listen to the last episode because we spent a long time on it then. And this shit is boring. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But there's one obvious problem with both code pleading and notice pleading. Both code and fact pleading and notice pleading assume that a party who is drafting the pleading for filing is being truthful and not just making shit up. I know people lie in court. This is my shocked face. Oh my God, they lie in they court. They lie. I know. You would think wow. they don't. And judges don't know the law. <laughs> That's surprising too. That that one for any judge on one of my cases listening, that one is purely the opinion of a lawyer named Tommy. I respect you all and know that you all have an encyclopedic knowledge of the law. Uh, Every es- single thing. Yeah, especially when you're over. agreeing with me. Especially when you're agreeing with me. First, let's cover what is not a penalty for lying in a pleading. Perjury is not automatically a penalty for lying in a pleading. Perjury is generically defined, defined at common law, as making a material false statement, knowingly or willfully, while under oath or affirmation or the penalty of perjury, and where such an oath is authorized by law. A majority of the states also have a requirement that it be given in an official proceeding before charges for perjury can be laid. However, it's important to note that the federal definition of perjury, the one found in the United States Criminal Code at 18 U.S.C. 1621, has no such proceeding requirement. To break down those elements for perjury, and we're going to go in depth. Tommy said you did a drill down on perjury, and motherfuckers, you're right. I'm I'm (laughs) giving you a drill down on perjury because I don't want to hear any of you assholes say he perjured himself at a future date when we're talking about this shit. Material in the instance of perjury means that a lie is about something that will affect the outcome of the matter. It's a very subjective standard and will depend on the facts and the case uh, as to whether or not something is material. For instance, uh, something happened at 2 p.m. may not matter in the case unless the question is uh, relevant to they were found dead at 1.59. And you said, well, no, I saw them at 2 p.m., so they weren't dead at 1.59. If you're lying, that's material. Yeah. Uh, Knowingly or willfully means that the person who is making the statement knows it to be false. Okay, Willful in this situation has been interpreted by the courts as just meaning a knowing lie. The law doesn't seek to punish an honest mistake. It only seeks to punish ones that you make knowing it is untruthful and that you willfully make. Under an oath or an affirmation will require that the person is under an obligation to tell the truth. 
The best example being that you're placed on notice of a requirement to speak truthfully, placing your hand on whatever book of pleading, raising the other hand and saying, I will tell the truth under penalty of perjury. Lying in general is not illegal. It may be immoral, but it's not illegal unless you are aware that lying in that situation is illegal. As a quick aside... Go ahead. Let me chime in slightly because I, I didn't get a chance to do the reading, but I don't, I'm not going to let you take all of it. I had to knock yourself out. <laughs> we And I'm sure uh, Boozy will tell you this. You can give people an out all the time. People lie in court, in depositions. They lie. And at depositions more so, I will give folks an out, right? Someone will tell me I wasn't at you know, the intersection of 34th Street and 7th Avenue in Manhattan. I was you know, in Aruba that day. And I have a picture of them literally walking across, a video of them literally walking across the street, and it's them. You know, imagine the most discernible human being or non-human being you can imagine. Imagine Donkey Kong with a red tie that says DK across it, walking across, you know, 7th Avenue in Manhattan. And I know that they're lying. you got to give them an out because it makes them look stupid if they lock themselves into their lie. So I'll say, are you familiar with the penalties for perjury? Normally, if you're a defense lawyer or somebody else who's on the other side of that table, your ears go up and go, can I have a minute? You know how many times I get that? Well, counsel, (laughs) before you ask any more questions of my client, can we step outside for a minute? Absolutely. Let let me take my client to the dipshit room and tell them what's about to happen. Normally, that tends to smooth out the wrinkles. And then I'll say, you know, you do the little dance off the record. You say, does your client want to correct any of their prior testimony? Absolutely. Would you like me to do it or should you do it? No, no, no. You, I'll do it. I'll do it. Don't worry about it. Uh, after speaking with my client, we'd like to correct a few things that might have been misset, misstated or, you know, you give people an out. You don't like just let them succumb to the penalties and, and that's, for perjury. And that's actually uh, an, a defense to perjury that I did not mention. So I'm glad you brought up is recantation is a defense Ooh, to perjury. Do I get a cookie? yourself is a defense to perjury. Uh, because the crime itself can be, you influence things improperly. And if you stop and you go, wait, no, that wasn't right. And you recant your false statement, that can serve as a defense. The last part of perjury is where such an oath is allowed by law, meaning that you have to be in a situation where the law requires you to speak truthfully or face a penalty. In other words, the government must have the legal ability to require you to speak truthfully. And it must have exercised that authority. If a cop walks up to you or a lawyer walks up to you at McDonald's and says, were you at the corner of Main and Vine at 2 p.m. on the 30th, you can look at them and say, no, I was in Aruba, and walk the fuck off. Even if they say, remember, this is given under penalty of perjury. They got no reason to put you under perjury, uh, under the penalties of perjury while you're ordering a hamburger. Examples of perjury at federal law, actually good ones can be found in the recent Ninth Circuit case, uh, Hoseng Yim v. Barr. I said Pith Circuit in my notes here because I'm an idiot. Uh, Yim was a consolidated case regarding an appeal from the Board of Immigration Appeals and was handled uh, three distinct situations where people were facing removal from the country, deportation, uh, because they had been charged in part with perjury. 
Uh, testifying falsely in a court proceeding. That's an obvious one. Providing false information on a DMV form when the form expressly stated you were giving the information under penalty of perjury. Signing a sworn affidavit knowing that it contains a false material representation. Swearing that something is true without knowing that it is true, even if the ultimate fact is true. And I hear you saying, what was that last one? Yes, you can be convicted of perjury, even if the testimony you give turns out to be true. The offense of perjury is not simply you lied under oath in conditions that meet all the elements, but rather that you intended to give testimony that you do not know to be true or that you believe to be untrue at the time you gave it. As such... Subjective inquiry into your brain. As such, if you testify to something being true and you believe it isn't true when you testify, technically you are committing perjury, even if the ultimate fact is true. If you testify, Jane was at the corner of Market and Vine at 2 p.m., and that is a material fact, but in your mind, you believe that Jane was on the other side of the city, it doesn't matter if Jane was actually at the corner of Market and Vine at 2 p.m. You intended to lie, therefore they presume you did. Now, why is lying in a complaint not perjury? Under 18 U.S.C. 1621-2, perjury extends to any declaration, certification, verification, or statement made under penalty of perjury that subscribes as true any material matter that the person testifying does not know to be true. You may think this would necessarily include statements of fact made in a complaint that the plaintiff knows are false when they're making them, but no. A statement of fact in a complaint that is a lie is not perjury federally. The main reason that perjury would not be found in those circumstances is nobody is verifying complaints. There is no requirement to verify the facts in a complaint in a federal case under notice pleading. Verification is a process found in several state courts where someone reviews New York a document. Being one. New York requires it. <laughs> Same with in certain actions. Same certain actions, yeah. When someone reviews a document prior to filing and signs a statement saying that the statements in it are true and correct. Federally, there is no requirement that a pleading, including a complaint, be verified by anybody with knowledge prior to filing. And without a verification, there is no statement being given under a penalty of perjury. So I hear you thinking, so who does sign a complaint? Who does sign a pleading federally? Well, we have to go back to our old friend, the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. The Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 11A 
requires that every pleading, motion, or other paper submitted to the court must be signed by a lawyer or in a case where someone's representing themselves by that party. So as long as a lawyer signs it, can it say anything you want, whether it's true or not? Well, quite obviously, no. Lawyers have an absolute ethical duty of candor to the tribunal, meaning we cannot knowingly represent a false position or false facts to the court. This is found generally in our model rules of professional conduct under Rule 3.3. And while the model rules are not uniform from state to state, they have been largely adopted by each and every state, and every state has adopted a version of Rule 3.3. A lot of people confuse this duty of candor to mean that you as an attorney have to tell everything to every judge all the time. I'm not obligated if there's a fact that's bad for me and the other side doesn't bring it up. I don't have to come in and say, my guy wasn't wearing, you know, all of you who know me or have known me from prior times I've been a guest, I do injury law primarily in medical malpractice, civil rights violations. We all call it personal injury as an umbrella. Just because I'm not wearing my glasses, I don't need to tell the judge arguing a motion, oh, by the way, my client wasn't wearing his glasses. If the defendant forgets to mention that on the motion, it's to my client's best interest not to do that, right? But if I'm asked a direct question, or if the words as an officer of the court are said to me, that means, hey, is this real? Do you know? Are you going to represent to the court right now that this is true? That's when the red light comes on and you have to go, okay, he wasn't wearing his glasses or whatever it might be, right? You don't have to say everything that's true all the time. You have to protect your client too. It's a balancing act. Right. To go through our duty of candor, actually, and most states actually adopt the duty of candor directly from the model rules. Uh, the model rules require that a lawyer not knowingly make a false statement of fact or law to a tribunal or fail to correct a false statement of material fact or law that has been previously made to the tribunal by that lawyer. So if I fuck up a fact, all right, if I make a representation of fact and it's incorrect and I later find out, you know, two days later, oh shit, I fucked that up. I've got to correct it. I've got to correct it. I've got to tell the court, Your Honor, I, the, without intent, I have misrepresented a fact in this matter. Uh, we would like to correct the record now. Uh, if I make a false statement of law, if I make an inaccurate statement of law, I say the law is A, it's really B, and it is my error because I have not kept up on the, I've been a bad lawyer, bad lawyer, and I have not kept up on the developments legally. Uh, and I find out, oh, shit, that's been overturned. I have to correct that statement I have made. Notice it doesn't say I have to correct statements made by other people. All right. That's their problem. That's not my problem until I make that representation. Uh, as also, and this is kind of fun, uh, we can't hide the ball. If we know that there is a legal authority in a controlling jurisdiction that is directly adverse to the position of our client uh, and opposing counsel doesn't bring it up, we have to bring it up. If the law the keyword there is directly. Yeah, if the law says in this situation there is no way your client can recover. And I'm aware of that law. 
and opposing counsel doesn't bring it up. That is a directly adverse uh, legal authority. And you may think that I could sit here and say, well, they didn't bring it up. That's that's their fucking problem, not my problem. No, I know about it. I know it's directly adverse. I have to make the court aware of it. Exactly. And that was kind of dovetailing off of what I was saying before. You don't have a duty to correct the things that your colleague is saying. and You don't have a duty to hurt your client, but you do have a duty. There are statutes. I can think of one off the top of my head that basically says certain activities in New York are not you. You can't recover for them. They're like um, one of them is I think hang gliding. It's literally we have a law that says you can't if you get hurt hang gliding. Sorry, you're out of luck. You can't sue someone for it. So if I sue somebody XYZ hang gliding company and I walk in there and I make an argument and the court and I know that that statute exists and the guy doesn't bring it up, I do have to say, Your Honor, well, you know, pursuant to well whatever, or just say, Your Honor, honestly, there's a statute here that says I can't recover. Because if you don't, then what happens later? Sanctions. And we cannot offer evidence that we know is false. If we know the evidence is false, we can't offer it in. Uh, if our client or our witness offers material evidence that we come to know is false, we have to correct the record. We have to take remedial measures, including, if necessary, disclosure to the tribunal. And with the exception of a criminal defendant, uh, we can refuse to present evidence that we reasonably believe is false. One of the most frightening terms, and every lawyer in the world knows what it means when your opposing counsel stands up, and you start salivating when you hear this, when your opposing counsel stands up and says, uh, Your Honor, my client will be testifying in the narrative. <laughs> What that means, because if the lawyer offers them up and assists them in testifying and believes they're going to lie in the testimony, if they do that, they are suborning perjury. They are assisting someone in perjury, and that's a big no-no. But you can't always prevent someone from testifying. In a criminal case, for instance, a criminal defendant has an absolute right to testify. They have an absolute right. Uh, so a lawyer can say, I don't think you should testify. A criminal defendant can say, I'm going to, fuck you. And the, how do you handle that? As your as their attorney, you can't examine them. You would be helping them to lie to the court. You'd be violating your duty of candor to the tribunal. So you say they will be testifying in the narrative. Or uh, you say, is there anything you would like to tell the court? Yeah. That's, that's one of the more, I guess, maybe a New York parlance type thing, but... We tell them, is there anything you would like to say to the court? Which, which is, and that's it. Which is No, what time of day, where were you? And everybody in that room... Knows you're lying. Knows. Every single person knows you're lying. Every person. The judge. Would you and, like to step up, counsel? That's usually what I get. Would and, you like to talk? And maybe, and maybe they're not lying throughout their entire testimony, but there's one thing that you reasonably believe is false that they will not let go of. And you can't help them get to that point. Uh, the other one is, especially in civil cases, when a witness is being called, uh, especially a defendant or a plaintiff is being called, and their attorney's questioning them, and then they start giving answers, and the attorney goes, could I have a moment with my client? Uh, because that's, that's much like the depositions. That's where you're going, oh, they're lying. They're lying. 
and you start like the drool starts running out of the sides of your mouth because you're either lying or fucking up really really bad oh yeah so one of the two and either one is good for you if you other side if you're the other side uh, in fact, though, the reason we're talking about it when it comes to the question of Rule 11 and sanctions is Rule 11B actually adopts the attorney's duty of candor. Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 11B says that when a lawyer signs a pleading, a motion, any other paper to the court, when they sign it, file it, submit it, or later advocate it in front of the court, we are certifying to that court that to the best of our knowledge, information, and belief formed after a reasonable inquiry, the pleading is not presented for an improper purpose, the claims and defenses are warranted by existing law or a non-frivolous argument for the modification, extension, or establishment of a new law, the factual portions of it do or likely will have evidentiary support at some point, and that any denials of fact are warranted by the evidence or reasonably based on a belief or lack of information. So that leads to the question, what is an improper purpose? Well, Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 11B bars attorneys from signing pleadings when they are presented for an improper purpose. Generally, what that means is the driving reason for that pleading, for that motion, for that paper that's being submitted is something other than obtaining the relief ostensibly being sought. This is an objective standard. It is drawn not only from the pleading or subjective standard. It is drawn not only from the pleading but the circumstances that surround the filing of it. For example, harassment of the other party is improper. Filing a lawsuit that simply repeats previously unsuccessful claims against the same defendant, or where a claim is patently frivolous or done simply to frustrate the opposing party, your goal isn't getting relief. Your goal is to piss the other guy off. Is to be a dick. I'm actually looking at New York's Rule 130 because I've never done it side by side, federally and New York's rule. Our conduct for sanctions is frivolous conduct that is taken primarily to delay the litigation, harass or injure another, or the assert or making by counsel the assertion of any material or factual statement known to be false. They almost mirror each other. Oh yeah. So it's it's and, very, very interesting. And because, as we'll see later on, Pennsylvania directly mirrors it. Yeah, it's, it's that kind of stuff, guys. Like, this is not – you don't just do stuff – although our system is adversarial, you don't do stuff without an aim, right? You have to have a purpose in furtherance of the reason why you were hired. Move the case to trial. Get a settlement. Do, you can't just sit there and like, I hate this fucking guy, so fuck him. <laughs> I mean I say that shit to their faces after they, we leave the room. I go, I really fucking don't like you. But I don't write a motion specifically to screw him or his client because then you run afoul of what I call Rule 130 and the civil rules of, rules of civil procedure call 11. So, you know, it's it's that kind of stuff. We can be nasty and mean and, and grit our teeth and do all this stuff, but you are still held accountable for what you do when you put a suit and tie on and stand in front of someone with a black robe. Other improper purposes include delay, uh, trying to to stop someone from taking an action or just drag things out uh, or increasing the expense of the other party, an action or a filing that is made simply to try and force the other party out of court or bleed them. As a matter of fact, one of the cases and one of the, the many 
uh, articles that I read preparing for tonight, uh, which will be up on the Patreon for our Patreon supporters as part of the show notes, uh, is a, a finding of improper purpose where an ex-husband said he wanted them to file everything they could because he wanted to make that bitch pay. So when is a claim not warranted? If a claim or defense is not warranted by existing law or a reasonable argument cannot be made to modify or expand the existing law or create some new law, it is a frivolous claim. That actually is the exact language from Professional Management Associates, the KPMG Limited Partnership, uh, that you'll find in the Eighth Circuit from 2003. We refer to this as the giggle test. Can you make the argument with a straight face such that someone looking at it can at least give you the benefit of the doubt that you may be able to convince a reasonable, rational person you have a cause of action? It has been described in many law schools as the giggle test. After you've written it, when you look at it, do you giggle a little? Do you say, med mal? <laughs> um, and if you do, you probably don't have a claim that is warranted by the existing law. We judge this by first determining if the law in any way supports the argument or if the law completely forecloses the argument. For example, where a statute would clearly bar the refiling of a bankruptcy after dismissal, have you made any good faith argument based in law that overcomes the interpretation of the statute? And that's not just me yanking something out of my ass. That's a case. An attorney uh, was barred from filing a Chapter 7 after the dismissal of a Chapter 13, and... Ray tried to file the, the chapter seven, made no argument as to why the statute should not apply. Uh, and the statute was very clear on its face. Had he made an argument as to it that drew upon existing law or even equitable considerations within the law, uh, um, why that should be allowed or why the statute didn't apply, maybe it passes the giggle test. And it's not a rule 11 uh, motion. Not factually supporting on this, under Rule 11, when signing submitting the information, are the facts in the pleading actual supportable facts with a likelihood of being proven in discovery? If not, the claim is once again frivolous. You can't just say whatever the fuck you want because it meets it. These claims, these facts that you make have to be plausible facts and you have to be careful too though because when you're making these when you're drafting complaints and, and making pleadings and suing people you you have two separate standards that apply on motions to resolve the case right there you have a motion to dismiss which takes everything as true like what Boozy's saying and then there's what's called the motion for summary judgment which is a separate standard that assumes all facts construed against the moving party, does this person still have a claim, right? So one is done after discovery, after depositions, after subpoenas, after all paperwork, after all the shit that we hate. That's the motion for summary judgment. Assuming everything that the person who's not making the motion 
giving them the benefit of the doubt, do you still have a claim? And then the stuff that we're talking about now, motions to dismiss a complaint. Is everything, if we assume it's all true in this document, in the four corners of this document, do we still have a case to go after? Well, even, so that's where you run afoul of it. Even if, more than that, because what you're talking about is Rule 12, but these are just the standards to get in the door under Rule 11. What are you verifying? As an attorney, when you sign it, what has to be in your complaint? You can't just say whatever the fuck you want. You have to make sure the facts to some degree are real facts. I can say whatever the fuck I want. I can put in a pleading enough things to survive a Rule 12 motion. But if they're not real facts, A, it's not going to be proven. And if I know they're not real facts, that's when it becomes sanctionable conduct. Because who bears the burden of verifying the facts in a pleading are correct? The lawyer, the person signing it, as stated in Rule 11b, the burden for making sure a pleading is not frivolous or filed for an improper purpose is the party that signs it under Rule 11a. And mm. under Rule 11a, that party is the lawyer. And the punishment for failing to do so is found in 11C, sanctions. Pursuant to Rule 11C, when an attorney fails to make sure their pleading is not frivolous, is uh, supported by a reasonable argument, and that the reasonable inquiry is factual in nature, the attorney, upon the motion of another party, or more rarely by the motion of the court itself, may be subject to sanctions. And what is a sanction? A sanction is a punishment from the court. This applies not just to the attorney, but to the attorney's entire firm and is not a great thing to have happen if you want to have literally any career advancement. And sanctions can be hefty. While sanctions are not necessarily monetary in nature, they can be. A sanctionable uh, conduct, sanctionable conduct in the science of meaning of a pleading can lead to sanctions that are within the limits of whatever is necessary, not only to deter sanctional conduct from happening again from this attorney or party, but from any other person that may find themselves in the same situation in the future. This can include dismissals of the action. It can include negative inferences. It can include attorney's fees and expenses. And it can include monetary sanctions. Money. Cash money, baby. With an important exception. If a party is represented by a lawyer, they cannot have monetary sanctions imposed against them directly. Those sanctions are imposed against the attorney. And why is that? Because who bears the burden of making sure their signature on that piece of paper was supporting a pleading or motion that was not for an improper purpose? and that, after reasonable inquiry, made factual statements. It's the lawyer. 
examples of sanctions that can be issued. Monetary sanctions, like we just talked about. Dismissal, throwing the case out of court and saying you don't get to file anymore. Dismissal with prejudice. An adverse inference. Because of a sanctionable conduct, the fact finder can assume some negative facts exist. Sanctions under Rule 11, by the way, not just for pleadings, although that's the context we're talking about them in tonight, but for all filings signed by an attorney that are submitted to a court. As such, a motion for summary judgment could be sanctionable. For our purposes, though, as I said, we're focused on pleadings and thus pre-filing responsibilities. Generally, an attorney in a Rule 11 jurisdiction, and just to be clear, federally that's all jurisdictions, and most states, if not all states, have adopted some version of Rule 11, have a duty to make a reasonable pre-filing inquiry before signing a pleading and submitting it to the court. This creates an affirmative duty on the attorney to investigate both the law and the facts that underlie a complaint before they file it. An affirmative duty, of course, is one that you always have in a situation. You do not have to be told that you have it or have something happen to expect you to have it because it always exists. As such, Rule 11 creates a duty for attorneys to verify the information going into their complaints before they file them. This is what we refer to as due diligence. The overarching question then becomes, what is a reasonable inquiry? And the answer to that question is in the rule itself. The rule calls for a reasonable inquiry under the circumstances. This is necessarily an objective and subjective test that looks to what information a reasonable attorney under the same circumstances in which you filed would have inquired into. For example, if you're retained with less than 24 hours prior to the expiration of a statute of limitations, you may not be able to make a more reasonable inquiry than relying on what your client told you. On the other hand, if you have three months before the statute of limitations expires, you would have enough time to look at the facts and the law that would underlie the claim and determine whether or not they support an argument. Now, this doesn't mean we have to go out there and be Columbo. The Advisory Committee to the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure stated when enacting Rule 11 back in 1983 that only some pre-filing inquiry into both the facts and the law are required to satisfy an attorney's affirmative duty. The question, then, becomes how reasonable was the inquiry in light of the situation? Sometimes this will allow an attorney to simply rely on their client's statements. However, other times, it's clear you cannot simply rely on their statements, and you have to undertake some independent investigation outside of it to determine if the statements they told you are true. So, let's run a quick test. Is this a reasonable inquiry, yes or no? Tommy, an attorney files a complaint that... Oh, alleges- God. <laughs> Am I back in school? You are. Sorry. An attorney files a complaint that alleges multiple people have been harmed by the alleged racketeering actions of a single company. It later turns out one of the people were not harmed. His client had told him they were a known problem client of the alleged injured party. Was there a reasonable inquiry? 
I would say yes. Because it's only one person out of a group of people. You don't have reason to believe that one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. And you did your due diligence. You looked into it. You asked the person. And you got the answer. This was a known problem client. You can make that logical leap. The Sixth Circuit agrees with you. The attorney was entitled in that circumstance to rely on the statement of their client. An attorney is told by a longtime client that they have been damaged by a letter published by the defendant. The client does not state the amount of the damages, and neither does the complaint. The attorney relies on that statement. Was there a reasonable inquiry? This one's different. You didn't do enough digging. You didn't ask the guy, how were you hurt? How did you lose business? This one's no. No way. No. In the 11th Circuit, this fact pattern was explicitly held to not be a reasonable inquiry. So, you may ask, can you rely on your client or not? Well, let's look at the latter case. Worldwide Primates, Inc. v. McGreal. This is a 1996 case out of the 11th Circuit based out of Florida because it's always fucking Florida. Why is it always fucking Florida? Um, Worldwide Primates was engaged in the commercial sale of wildlife. Yes, we are going Joe Exotic. Shirley McGreal, an animal rights activist, sent letters to a client of Worldwide recounting issues with Worldwide, including a number of attachments, all of which were true. Worldwide called their longtime attorney and showed him the letters, but not the attachments, and advised there were two deals that had no profit that resulted from the letters. The attorney did not review the attachments, even though they were referenced in the letters, and did not ask about the damages on those deals. The attorney also did not contact Worldwide's client that the letters were sent to. As a result, the attorney was found not to have made a reasonable inquiry and sanctioned $25,000. Why was the ape attorney sanctioned? In worldwide primates, there were multiple indicators that would make a reasonable attorney aware of a need for further inquiry. The client said they were damaged, but only said they did two deals at no profit. A diligent attorney would have asked for some proof or further indication of the damages suffered. Exactly. The, the letters referenced attachments but the attorney never asked to see those attachments. A diligent attorney would have reviewed the damning attachments to determine if they could support a cause of action. The damage was supposedly caused by interference with a specific client, but that client was never contacted. A diligent attorney would have attempted to contact the client to see if the business relationship had been damaged. And spoiler, it had not been. So you have to do some investigation, but how much? Who the fuck knows? The question of what constitutes a reasonable investigation is honestly a moving target. It depends on factors such as the timing of the action, whether the sole party available for the information is the client or are there others that you can contact, how onerous it would be to obtain the information, and so on and so on. A good rule of thumb is if there's a question that is needed to support the claim, you'll need to make some effort to find out the answer in advance. 
For instance, a reasonable inquiry was found to exist by as little as a lawyer aware that a lack of a notice was a requirement to sustain the cause of action, told his client to ask that his ex-wife, who was living at the marital home, if a notice was ever sent to the formal marital residence. When she said no and he filed action, they said that was a reasonable inquiry. So how are Rule 11 sanctions sought? Well, Rule 11 sanctions are sought always by a separate motion. It must stand alone. Otherwise, Rule 11 motions are themselves insufficient. This is actually a case from your neck of the woods, Tommy. Jim Door Repairs, Inc. v. Young Equipment Sales. It's a Southern District, New York case in 2020 that really drilled down those requirements. Prior to filing a Rule 11 motion, attorneys have to warn each other they intend to do so. Generally, you do this by sending out a letter that places the other party on notice of the sanctionable conduct in the pleading or writing or motion. After the letter is sent, the offending party then gets 21 days to either correct the, uh, the sanctionable portion or withdraw the offending pleading or motion. We refer to this as the safe harbor period. Only after the expiration of the safe harbor period, without retraction or correction, can a motion under Rule 11 be made. In short, under Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 11, the buck stops with the lawyer. In part, due to the lesson pleading standard, the attorney is the party responsible for making certain the case is not frivolous in nature. This arises from an attorney's greater knowledge of the law and the attorney's duty of candor to the tribunal. While parties may face sanctions as well, it is the attorney who draws the brunt of the court's ire when a reasonable inquiry is not made or an attorney knowingly allows a case to move forward for an improper purpose. And I hear all of you right now thinking, what about those election suits? What about those election lawsuits? Well, it's important to note that in many circumstances, a court will not presume bad faith. While the court has the ability to raise issues on its own, we refer to it as sua sponte, where there is a pending motion to dismiss the matter on other grounds, such as Rule 12, the court is much more likely to go that route. Likewise, Rule 11 is considered an extreme remedy. It is typically constricted to use in only those situations where it is clear an attorney did not act in accordance with the requirements and has raised an argument that is not even slightly tenable under the law. However, there are cases where that exact Rule 11 argument is being made right now. In the current Eastern District of Michigan case, King v. Whitmer, there is actually a pending motion for Rule 11 sanctions against Sidney Powell and L. Lynn Wood, specifically for these purposes. The last hearing on the matter was June 14th of 2021, and I assume we are waiting for an order. So we talked about notice pleading states. What about code pleading states? What about those fact pleading states? Well, most states, as a lawyer named Tommy and myself have said several times now, have some similar requirement to Rule 11. For example, in Pennsylvania, despite being a code or fact-pleading jurisdiction, we have an identical statute under Pennsylvania Rule of Civil Procedure 1023.1. And if you look through that, 
just Google PARCP 1023.1, you will definitely see it tracks almost identically the federal rule 11. However, there's a kicker in these fact-pleading states. In Pennsylvania and in New York and in some other fact-pleading states, when a pleading contains a statement of fact that isn't part of the record already established, the pleading has to be verified by someone with personal knowledge that the facts in it are true. In Pennsylvania, you find this at Rule of Civil Procedure 1024. We have an analogous requirement. Um, I don't know if PA has this, but you might be able to tell me. So uh, we attorneys can make verifications for summons and complaints for certain pleadings if their client does not reside in the county in which your office is located. We so we do and do not. We have an unavailability requirement. We can verify it by saying our client is unavailable. Uh, but best practice immediately after that is to then get their verification and substitute it. Yeah, we have that too. So normally it'll you can verify your pleadings and then, you know, right around depositions after they've testified, we usually have folks fill out an application or a verification that says, you know, I read the, all my other stuff and in light of my deposition testimony and my recollection therein, you know, it's like a magic wand that verifies everything. Yeah, we, we, we tend to do it much sooner than that. Typically in Pennsylvania, the way you want to do it is you want your client to verify it. You want it done with enough time for you. But if it's like an eve of filing, uh, you know, statute of limitations expires the next day. You verify it based on what's told to you by your client, based on your knowledge, information, and belief. And then you have your client verify it and substitute in their verification for yours. Yeah, we very rarely use them before depositions. Well, we, we, have, we have a very good reason for it. Because uh, in Pennsylvania, at least, it could be perjury. All verifications in Pennsylvania are done pursuant to 18 PACS 4904 unsworn falsifications to authorities. Wow. This is a criminal statute that makes it a misdemeanor of the second degree if, with the intent to mislead a public servant, a person makes any written false statement they do not believe to be true and submits or invites reliance on any writing which they know to be forged, altered, or otherwise lacking, and then or submits or invites reliance on a sample specimen map or boundary mark that they know to be false. These types of statements fall under perjury, uh, if it's uh, done on that with the effect of a legal one. The perjury provisions are applicable to it. The penalty is uh, a person convicted to pay a fine of at least $1,000. Very rarely prosecuted, but technically can. And sometimes, attorneys who verify those things, and even attorneys who are engaged in them when other people verify them, make themselves liable. Pennsylvania and some other jurisdictions actually have a tort known as the wrongful use of civil proceedings. In Pennsylvania, we call this the Dragonetti Act. It's codified at 42 PACS 8351, and it provides a civil cause of action when someone wrongfully initiates civil proceedings against another in a grossly negligent manner or without probable cause and for an improper purpose. So by making it a separate cause of action, 
The Dragonetiac makes damages more expansive. It is not limited to simply sanctions or attorney's fees, but any damages which would arise from the civil action. This does not only apply just to actual damages, but in Pennsylvania can apply to consequential damages, and there is some talk about whether or not it could apply to emotional damages. To avoid Dragonetti liability, an attorney must establish probable cause for bringing the action, meaning they must show that they had a reasonable belief in the existence of the facts and show one of either the facts supporting a valid claim under existing or developing law or the good faith belief the action is not intended merely to harass or maliciously injure an opposing party. It's like an intersectionality with the Rule 11 thing. It's really interesting because in New York, we have what we call Melissa's prosecution, which everyone hears the word prosecution and thinks, oh, I can sue my ADA. Not that. You can sit there and say, this person brought a lawsuit against me for no reason other than what's contemplated in Rule 11, but it's not a private right of action. You only get the damages that flow from the wrongful lawsuit that you're alleging. There is no consequential damages. There are no treble damages. It ends there. It's this person sued me. They shouldn't have sued me. So I'm suing them. And this is the bill that I had to hire an attorney to defend me on it. I want this exact amount of money. Well, and There's and no, it's not as expansive as this. So all of you who can see me are seeing me do like the furrowing of my brow because it's, this would never occur to me, at least not in New York. And, and it is it is not just something that I speak of academically. My firm, not myself and not anybody presently at my firm, which should tell you how we viewed this. Uh, my firm was the subject of a Dragonetti claim years and years ago. The attorney that filed something that was subject of a Dragonetti claim is not with my firm anymore. They are not, to the best of my knowledge, practicing in this state anymore. Uh, drawing a Dragonetti claim is a big fucking deal. Uh, which leads us to the, the next portion, because you got to remember the rule of thumb for lawyers. First, if you get hit with Rule 11 sanctions, people do get referred to the judiciary and the disciplinary boards for those, if they're particularly egregious. So the first rule of thumb, your case is not worth my license. Lawyers who may be held liable for filings that lack merit will often undertake a reasonable investigation of the facts and the law for no other reason than the failure to do so could cost them money or, in some cases, their license. Blatant violations of Rule 11 and its state variants can be and are often referred to disciplinary boards as they interplay into an attorney's ethical duties of candor. As such, lawyers have much more motivation than their clients to make sure their filings have some bare merit to them and to keep the client and the facts and the pleading honest. On that note, I hope to some extent we have answered the question of how do we keep it honest when we're doing these pleadings. Now, as you may remember from last time, Tommy, this is where we turn and see whether or not there are questions from folks for tonight's Legal Funhouse. Uh, let's see. Uh, the one question I have right here is on Rule 11. How does Rule 11B pertain to slap suits? I would say that's just another form of Rule 11. 
to be honest. Yeah, it's I, just I, a I codification. Really, I would say it's just a codification of a Rule 11 form on that. Because uh, the, the typical thing with the slap suits is they're, they're generally going to overcome Rule 11. They're, they're going to be able to meet the bare fact and merit. But when you have an anti-slap statute that says, no, 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 this is, this is the new merit standard. This is the new facts and legal merit standards. I would say the anti-slap statute is really just a specific form of Rule 11 in the jurisdictions they have. And I should be clear, not every jurisdiction has an anti-slap statute. We just passed ours recently. It was, New York really didn't have one. Uh, Granted, that doesn't mean that the First Amendment doesn't exist, but it does does mean that there was no strategic way of saying to somebody who brought a baseless defamation claim against you that it needs to meet the standard and it didn't, right? It's like a gatekeeping rule 11. It's another way to keep you out of the courthouse. Well, and to be clear, what SLAP stands for is a strategic lawsuit against public participation. And it is, uh, a SLAP suit is one that is made to silence people. It's uh, typically, it's a lawsuit made to silence people. Uh, and the anti-slap statutes, in theory, are intended to say, no, 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 no. If you're bringing a defamation claim, for example, which is your typical slap situation, then you got to meet this, 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 and this. Otherwise, we're not even going to let you in the door. We're going to kick it out right off the bat because we're not going to let you use the courts to silence your critics unfairly. Uh, so that's a whole thing on that. Uh, are there any other questions before we wrap it up tonight? Uh, I'll look at the chat since we did not have very many people submit things in the uh, in the Discord. Uh, uh, Plot Bunny Farm, this one's for you, Tommy. Uh, wasn't your anti-slap law put into place because of some Trump bullshit? <laughs> um, it actually, so funnily enough, the, one of the first applications of the anti-slap stuff is a Fox News lawsuit that's pending in front of a judge that I really, really admire. And he's dealing with it very, I would say very judiciously. He's he's balancing the labors of these things because Fox News is saying Dominion is, it's a Dominion voting systems case. So Dominion Voting Systems was this large company, for those of you who don't track this stuff like we do because we're giant nerds, they're a large voting company who operates in a lot of states and they operate oh, to oh, oh, help I, tally I votes. Have, I have like five different people coming into the chat now. Saying, oh, God. Did, did we open the floodgates? Did you do your disclaimer? Um, oh, God. And well, I, d- I don't know whether I did or not, but I'll do it You now. didn't, and I, I texted you privately <laughs> and said, we, we will, should do the disclaimer. All of before, the foregoing. Before the episode goes live on the podcast service, we will definitely have the disclaimer uh, recorded and spliced in. Um, yes. The boozy's. Oh, I gotta finish my. I had to finish my my Dominion thing. So would you would uh, you like me to say they shouldn't take it as legal advice first? Well, you could do it at the end and say all of the foregoing, blah blah blah, if you want. (laughs) Say the magic words. Go ahead. No, no, I'll let you finish your. Go, go, go ahead. 
I'll everything we talked slimmer. about before now and now. We are attorneys. We are not your attorneys. Everything we're talking about is for educational informational purposes and is a general discussion of law and legal concepts. The law varies widely from state to state and jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Therefore, you need to consult an attorney in your jurisdiction for advice on any legal matter you may be having. Do not rely on us. And for the love of God, do not say a fat man who pretends to be a badger on the Internet told me so. Same thing goes for a fat man who pretends to be a purple bird. <laughs> so please, for the love of God, I am not your lawyer. Okay, cool. So Dominion, um, we had our anti-slap fitting because of what was going on with Donald Trump and a lot of other folks who were suing people in New York because it came became a safe haven for defamation claims. We became a very, very large hotbed with a lot of litigation because all the media companies run through Manhattan and all this craziness. So the legislature's like, we're stopping this stuff. So they put a lid on it. One of my favorite judges is dealing with that now. And he basically is balancing the equity saying, well, Fox News is saying that this is Dominion's $20 billion lawsuit against Tucker Carlson is going to stop them from talking about election fraud. And we don't want that to happen because we want discourse like that to happen. But on the same token, you can't get on national television and say an election was stolen without anything to back it up. So it's a very, very big deal right now. Everyone is watching it who litigates in defamation, which I don't have very many defamation cases because not a lot of them have cognizable damages where I can say this is the amount of money that you hurt someone with. A lot of the Rule 11 stuff that I do on intake when I speak with someone about a defamation claim, they go, I said, is it, I, and pardon my French, but I go, do you feel bad or did you lose business because of this, right? A lot of the ones that are viable that I take, there's actual newsletters that are passed around about XYZ landscaping and from a church service this happened once. And they sent out newsletters saying, don't use these people. Um, they're sodomites and all this other stuff. And this guy printed his QuickBooks and said, look, this is the zip code where they posted it in. These are the zip codes from my jobs the year before. And these are the zip codes from the jobs the year after. So you could actually look and say, oh, he lost $35,000 worth of business. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. So yes, that's the long-winded answer to your question is the anti-slap stuff came in primarily because of a lot of the media companies in Manhattan, but also because we were really getting overwhelmed with a lot of defamation litigation that really was baseless. So the legislature was like, enough is enough. And, you know, Fox News deserves its chance to say, Dominion's just doing this to shut me up. You might not like them, but they do deserve that chance. The the law is open to everyone, even the dipshits. Correct. Um, Avocado, avocado, and we will leave. Hey, love the fucking name. Um, avocado, avocado. I like that. Uh, says they just want to say it was their first time watching. Uh, and thank you so much. Please go to your podcast service of your choice uh, and listen to all the the shitty episodes we've done. Uh, and they thoroughly enjoyed it. It makes the period between graduation and the bar so much more bearable. Uh, Look, my heart aches for you. My it yeah, aches. my my heart bleeds. My heart bleeds. <laughs> uh, but best of luck in the upcoming bar. I assume you are taking it in July, so best of luck to you. Uh, and hopefully, welcome to the fraternity, the the sorority, the great brother and sisterhood of legal practice. Uh, please pick up your crippling depression at the door. Um, 
I do want to plug the Lawyers and Liquor article about the bar and about taking the bar and about self-care during the bar. I have referred a lot of interns of mine to that article, not just because a very good friend of mine happens to have written it, but because the stuff that is in it is true. So please, that is, that is read terrifying. it, <laughs> that is read it again, and then go get ice cream. Read <laughs> it, read it again, and get ice cream. Okay? And glue it to your wall so you don't lose sight of the fact that you're doing this for a reason, but you're also still a human being who needs to eat and enjoy themselves. Okay? And Free with, legal advice, quote unquote. And with that, uh, and the reminder that I have to add the disclaimer and post at the beginning of the episode, uh, Tommy, thank you again for joining me tonight. And thank you all for having me again. If you ever want me to come back around, pester the shit out of him, and I will come and bother you all again. I and, promise. And one more time. It's so much fun. One more time. Congratulations on the engagement. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Folks, if you like what we do here on Boozy's Legal Funhouse, you can go to patreon.com slash lawyersandliquor and become one of our monthly supporters over there. Of course, you don't have to. You're more than welcome to say, fat man, you're not getting my money, and I'll still love and respect you. But if you want to help anyways, you can go to your podcast service of choice and give us five stars whether you like it or not. You can even leave a little comment that just says, fat man, I'm not giving you my money. I don't really give a shit. Uh, that said, until next week, I am the Boozy Barrister, Boozy Badger. This has been Boozy's Legal Funhouse with our guest, a lawyer named Tommy. You all have a wonderful rest of your day. You. Bye, everybody. Okay. <laughs>